Hey, good morning, RCC. Good. Wow, you guys are awake and ready to go. Uh, welcome to everybody at all the campuses. Great to have you guys with us. If we have not had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Matt. It is great to be back with you guys, and happy fourth to all of you. Um, I'm, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm thrilled to see you here. Um, I like the production and band here, but I was thinking I don't. They're not going to listen to me twice today. So. I'm really glad you showed up at church today. Great to have you guys with us, and we're going to do our best to make it worth your while, okay? What I want to do today, you're actually stuck with me for two Sundays. Today and next Sunday, what I want to do is share with you two truths that have guided me, directed me, um, influenced me over my last 365 days, because in the last year, I have had to personally deal with uh, maybe more uncertainty than I've ever had to deal with before. Uh, not just in personal life, but in professional life as well. And so I thought, you know what? I just want to share a couple of the things that have helped guide me through all of that for the one or two of you who maybe have dealt with a little uncertainty yourself. Most of you, it's been normal, right? But, but for all of us who've gone through uncertainty, I think we've had to figure out what is going to guide us, what's going to direct us, uh, what is going to shape the direction we take as we deal with uncertainty. So let me just start by acknowledging something that I think is important to acknowledge, especially for those of you who maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a church person or a Christian. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Um, and I just want to go ahead and lay this out at the very beginning because for all of my friends who are not Christians or church people, one of the things that frustrates them the most, and my guess is one of the things that frustrates you the most, is that those of us who are Christians have a tendency to resist the God that we say we trust and we say we follow. In other words, we don't always do what we say. Let's just be honest about that. We acknowledge forgiving is something we should do. We champion the idea of forgiving. God forgives everybody. We should forgive. And that's really easy to talk about until you and I are in the situation where we have to forgive. And then we find ourselves holding grudges instead of forgiving. We talk about how important it is to, uh, to give, to be generous, to trust God with everything that's been given to us. And that sounds great until we find ourselves in a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty and we're faced with a choice to be generous and then we decide to hold on to everything we have and we let greed win the day. We talk about how important honesty is. And honesty is important and we're all for honesty until we get to one of those situations where being honest is actually gonna cost us something. And at that point, we often choose not to be honest. This is something that all of us who are Christians deal with, and there is a word for it, and you already know what the word is. It is the word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We are all hypocrites. I think we can acknowledge that. We're all hypocrites. Now, some of you have become experts at it. Congratulations to you. We're, some of us are pros at it, but we're all hypocrites at different points, aren't we? And there's just something that is difficult at times when we find ourselves facing uncertainty, when we find ourselves facing difficulty, it's just hard at times to take what we say we believe, what we've said, what we've told other people, well, you should do this, you know, you oughta, and it's always the right thing to do. There's just something hard sometimes about actually lining up our actions and doing it. And for those of you who aren't Christians, and this drives you nuts about us, I get that, but maybe you can cut us a little slack because you'd have to admit, it is hard to trust a God that you can't see. And it's really hard to follow his agenda when you've got an agenda of your own. Now, you're probably not surprised by this information I'm about to share, but this problem of hypocrisy, this is not just some new thing. This has been going on for centuries with followers of Jesus. We've always battled this and dealt with it. This has been a part of religion. You pick any religion you want. This has been a problem 
for religious people for centuries and centuries and centuries. It goes all the way back when you look at the life of Jesus there in the first century. His harshest criticism, his strongest rebukes, his most direct words were aimed at the people who were most religious and most hypocritical. I want to introduce you to one of them today. He might have been the ringleader of the whole group. His name was Joseph Caiaphas. Joseph Caiaphas. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Joseph. So during Jesus' adult life, uh, Joseph Caiaphas, he's known in Scripture as Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the leader of the Jewish religion of Judaism. He was the top religious leader in the nation of Israel at the time. He oversaw a ruling religious body called the Sanhedrin, uh, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, these two groups. So he had all of that going for him. He was working with the Romans. He was trying to make sure that he protected his power and the power of this religious group. He had total control over, think about this, total control over the Jewish religion and the temple in Jerusalem, which means Caiaphas had lots of power, lots of influence, lots of connections, lots of money, lots of control. But Caiaphas also had a problem. His problem was Jesus had the crowds. And this made him nervous. This made the Jewish religious leaders nervous because it made the Romans nervous. See, anytime somebody came along and they began to gather a crowd, a larger and larger crowd, and there was buzz around an individual in Israel, it was cause for concern for the Jewish religious leaders because if that person generated enough upheaval that it got the attention of the Romans, well, that was never a good thing. Then the Romans would sweep in. The Romans would put an end to this movement, to this buzz, to whatever was beginning to happen. But in the course of that, it was the Jewish religious leaders. It was Caiaphas and his group. It was their responsibility to make sure none of these movements got off the ground. And so if the Romans had to step in, it meant Caiaphas hadn't done his job, which meant Caiaphas would lose his power. And so that's why there was this constant tension between religious leaders and Jesus back in his adult life, back in the first century. And all of it eventually reached a breaking point. And the irony of it is it reached a breaking point for Caiaphas and the religious leaders, not because of some content Jesus taught. It reached a breaking point because of some compassion that Jesus showed. Now, for all of you who grew up in church, or even if you didn't, you grew up with a mama who looked for free childcare, and so she put you in VBS as a kid. Do you remember that? It's like, I got to get rid of these kids this summer. So you went to every VBS in the whole county? You're going to remember this story, okay? You're going to remember this story. Everybody, anybody heard the name Lazarus? Y'all remember this guy, Lazarus? So Jesus was friends with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They lived in a little town just outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. And they were pretty close friends. And one day as Jesus is traveling around throughout the nation doing his ministry, word gets to him from Mary and Martha that Lazarus, Lazarus, their brother, he's sick. And Jesus waits a little while before he goes to Bethany. I'm sure they're waiting for him to show up and heal because they've seen him do this, but Jesus doesn't do that. To make a long story short, by the time Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus is dead. He's been dead and in a tomb for four days. And there is now a large crowd of people, as was the custom back then, a large crowd of people who are gathered in Bethany to mourn the passing of Mary and Martha's brother with them. And so they're all there, and they're all going through this, and Jesus shows up. And some of you will remember this story. To fast forward to the end of the story, Jesus surprises them all. He shocks them because he calls for Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and he brings Lazarus back to life. Lazarus walks right out of the tomb on his own, under his own power, which if you're sitting there thinking, Matt, how do you expect 
any rational adult to believe that. That's unbelievable. I, I'm completely with you on that. It is unbelievable. But the issue was there were so many people who were there in Bethany at the time mourning the death of Lazarus. There were all these eyewitnesses. And so while it was unbelievable, it was also undeniable. And whenever unbelievable and undeniable conflict, any rational human being goes with undeniable every single time. So you just couldn't deny it. You couldn't explain it. But you couldn't deny it. There were so many eyewitnesses. Yeah, we saw him dead. We, we were there when they put him in that tomb. And we just talked to him the other day. There were so many eyewitnesses that you can imagine what happens next. John, who is one of Jesus' closest followers, unpacks the scene for us. Here's what he writes. He says, now the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Well, of course they did because if you saw something like that happen, you couldn't stop talking about it either, could you? So word's going everywhere, not just throughout Bethany. It's getting to Jerusalem. It's starting to spread out throughout the country. Many people, John writes, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet Jesus. Because again, this makes perfect sense. If something like that happened in our day and there were that many eyewitnesses, we'd all want to meet the guy who pulled it off. But this gets the attention of the religious leaders. And John tells us, the Pharisees said one to another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The whole world, it feels like, has gone after Jesus now, which again, was a problem for them. Now, let me just tell you real quick because I find this fascinating. If you're wondering how did John have all this inside information on what was going on with these religious leaders, well, here's why. Because after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, many of these religious leaders, many of these Pharisees, actually began following Jesus, which is just one piece of evidence, but it is a compelling piece of evidence as to why you can trust that the resurrection actually happened. Because the very guys who orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus, then just a few weeks later, are now followers of his. You can't explain that apart from something extraordinary happened. And once they became followers of Jesus and became part of the first church, well, they're interacting with John all the time. And so they're giving John the scoop on what was going down. All of these events that transpired behind the scenes that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're telling him, we were so frustrated. We tried everything we could try to put an end to this Jesus movement and to stop all the momentum that you guys had. And we could do nothing to stop it. So what they decided to do is call an emergency meeting. And John tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees called this meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, what? Everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And that's our problem. We don't want the Romans coming and taking away our power, our control, our agenda, and our wealth. Now, here's the irony of this entire story. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had one goal. They were originally formed to do one thing and one thing only. And that was to be on the watch for the Messiah, God in human flesh. The Jewish people for centuries had believed God was one day going to come back to earth. And so the, the Pharisees' job was simply to watch. And when they got there, spot him, identify him, verify him, validating. And then make sure the whole nation knew so the Jews didn't miss the Messiah. And now here God is in human flesh and they're staring him in the eye. 
and they will not acknowledge and recognize who he is. He brings a man back to life out of a grave, and they will not acknowledge and recognize. Why? Well, because to acknowledge that was going to cost them too much. To acknowledge that would mean they would have to push their agenda to the side and follow his plan, not their plan. And this is where I think all of us find ourselves in the story, don't we? Have you ever had a moment? Are you living right now in that tension? We're to acknowledge and surrender and follow what God wants to do or what God is doing in and around you. It would cost you your agenda. It would cost you your plans. It would force you to say no to yourself and yes to something better. Yes to something different. Yes to a new direction. See, there's a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us. Because there's something in all of us, and this is the hypocrisy I'm talking about. We trust God and we're all for God showing up when we don't feel like we have control. We're all for God showing up and taking care of the things that are out of our control. But when we think we've got control, and God begins to mess with that, he begins to turn things upside down that we don't want turned upside down. Well, we start resisting and protecting and preserving. That's what these religious leaders are doing. It just feels like to acknowledge and follow Jesus is going to cost them things they don't really want to give up. And so in this meeting, as they're trying to figure out what are we going to do with this man, we got to put an end to this. Caiaphas speaks up. Here's what John tells us happened. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and he said, you guys know nothing at all. You don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He's going, listen, listen. It'd just be easier if we kill him. If we don't kill him, this movement's going to get so big, it's going to get the attention of the Romans. They're going to come. They're going to take our temple. They're going to take our jobs. They're going to take our lives, probably. They're going to take our nation. It's just better to kill Jesus than to risk all of that. It's better to kill Jesus than to trust him. Now, remember, John's writing this a little bit after the fact, right? He's recording all of this. So he's got the, the perspective of time to look back on. And so John adds this little bit of information, this little nugget for us, as he's looking back, reflecting on all that happened. He writes this, that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. This was John's way of reminding all of us readers. You know what? Caiaphas thought he was putting an end to the Jesus movement. In actuality, he multiplied it. Caiaphas thought he was fighting God's will, but he actually participated in it. In trying to resist God's will, he actually cooperated with it. He just didn't know it at the time. He didn't realize that no matter how much control he had, no matter how hard he resisted, no matter how hard he fought, God's will ultimately can't be blocked. His purposes ultimately will not be stopped. But he thought he had power. And so John adds that from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Now stop and think about that for a second. 
They actually believed they had so much power and control that they could take the life of the author of life. They thought they could take the life of someone they had just watched give life to a dead man a few days before. But this is what happens to all of us, isn't it? We overestimate our ability to control our own outcomes, to direct our own lives, and to manage our own circumstances. I'm telling you, there is a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us because there's a little bit in us of this idea of, man, I just want to resist. God, I'm good with you doing this, and I'm good with you doing that, and I'm okay with you doing that because I don't really have control over that anyway. But I've got plans here, and I've got dreams, and I've got my own agenda over here. And the minute you start messing with that, I'm going to resist it. The minute you start messing with that, I'm going to fight it. The minute you start messing with that, I'm going to ignore what you're trying to do. Because I can control that. I can make sure that outcome turns out the way I want to. I can manage that circumstance and get what I most want to get. But come on, you know this. Because you've done it before, just like I have. It never works out that way, does it? In the end, we don't have that much power. And in the end, what we think is best, what we think will lead to our freedom, to our enjoyment, rarely does. Over the last year, as I have navigated through so much of this uncertainty, there is a truth around this that I have been reminded of over and over and over again, and I have had to remind myself of it repeatedly Every time I found myself letting that little bit of Caiaphas in me come back and start, you know, I wanted to start resisting. I wanted to start fighting. I wanted to start pushing back on what God was trying to do. The truth I've had to remind myself of is simply this, that freedom is actually found on the other side of surrender. Now, surrender is scary. If you don't think it's scary, you've not done it right, okay? Surrender is scary, to take this thing that I think I control and this thing that I think I value and this thing that means so much to me and to open up my hand and say, okay, God, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but it's yours and I'll do whatever I think you're asking me to do with it. That's scary. It's why it requires trust. If it was certain, it would require no trust. It wouldn't be scary either. But here's what I've discovered. On the other side of that moment, on the front side, it's just full of fear. But every time I choose to open up my hand and surrender, on the other side of that, I find freedom. I find peace. I find confidence that God's with me and I'm moving in the right direction. No matter what happens, it'll, it'll be okay. But you can't get that on this side. You can't get that with closed fist. You only get that when you open up your hands and surrender. So here's been a little bit of my life over the last year, and this won't relate directly to you guys, but you've had your own experiences. So at the church I'm at in Kentucky, when COVID hit, we had to shut down services because we currently meet um, in a basketball arena on the campus of Murray State University. The university shut everything down. Nobody from the outside can come in, you know? So we shut down, and we ended up staying shut down for exactly... 365 days before we had another service. Now, 
that in and of itself is enough. And you can imagine, those of you who run businesses or own businesses, imagine, you know, you had to shut down, you couldn't do anything for a year. So we're shut down for a year. We're doing everything online. We have very little, you know, direct interaction with people. And we're going, wonder what's going to happen on the other side of this. Well, in the middle of all of that, while we're dealing with that, we also are in the middle of a $6 million building project for our first facility. And I was supposed to say yes to order the building uh, through the contractor on March the 12th. March the 11th is when the nation shut down. So we had to put pause on this building project that people were giving to and we'd been working toward for so long. I'm like, okay, that's all right. We come back in the fall and we're still not meeting, but we got all our financing still in line. We've checked everything. It's all good. So we reboot the project and we get the thing started again. And they order our building in November, which basically if you haven't been through a construction project, once eight pre-engineered metal buildings for half a million dollars have been ordered, you're at go time, all right? You don't get to, you don't get to send those back. It's not Amazon. So, so you're, you're going at that point. You're fully committed. So we did that. Everything looked great. And then um, in December, uh, I get a phone call from our banker. And what I didn't know is when they said everything's good to go, move forward, they weren't holding the appraisal yet. And we ran into appraisal issues. We had an appraiser take a $6 million project and tell us it was worth $2.8 million. All that means is this. They can't give us the money they were supposed to give us. And our financing fell apart. It fell apart while we had not met as a church for nine months. We were not going to be meeting for at least three more. Our giving was down. I couldn't go to any bank and talk to them because they would say, number one, your finances, you don't even look like you have enough money to do the building. And secondly, you don't, we don't even know if you have a church when you come back. I, was anybody going to come back? Nobody knew. I can't tell you how many people approached me and said, I, can't, I don't know why y'all are doing this. I don't understand what's going on. Are you, are you afraid you're not going to have a church when you come back? Are you afraid you're going to get halfway through this building and then not have enough money and it just kind of sit there? Are you afraid? Are you afraid? They were so encouraging. I was like, thank you for bringing all this up. I hadn't thought about any of it. So <laughs> appreciate you mentioning that. I'm like, of course. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But here's what happened. January the 4th, I was actually here. I was here on January the 3rd, and I spoke January 3rd of this year. I think it was the 3rd. And I was staying at Paul's house that night because I'm a cheap date. I'm telling you, y'all, it doesn't cost much when I come, all right? He's like, no, you're not getting a hotel. You're in our spare bedroom back there. So I'm, I'm, I'm staying back in Paul's spare bedroom. I, I actually don't mind it. It's better than a hotel. Melody's cooking's amazing, but that's a whole other story. So I'm like, yeah, just put me in the spare bedroom. So I wake up at one o'clock that morning and I'm going through all the numbers. Some of you may have had this experience, you know, I'm going through and I'm just thinking to myself, this is ludicrous. We're never going to get this facility finished. I don't even know how many people are going to show up when we start having services again. This is nuts. And for about six hours from 1am to 7am that morning, uh, the polite thing to say is that God and I talked about it. But I'm pretty direct. So I just let him have it. I'm like, what have you dragged me into? You know, so I, you know, 
I was very direct and let him know what a stupid idea this whole thing was, and he's responsible, but I'm going to get the blame for it. That's basically what I told him. When this all goes south, they ain't going to blame you. They're going to blame me, God. But I'll tell you what happened at the end of that. He reminded me of two things. One, he told us to do this. I just needed to shut up and trust him. And two, it wasn't my church to begin with. It was his. And that the freedom that I needed to make the right decisions was on the other side of surrendering. And I'll tell you what that did for me that day. It was a, it was a defining moment. I came back. I, didn't, I haven't lost any sleep since then. What it did is it gave me freedom. It gave me freedom when I was able to say, okay, well, this isn't your church anyway, God, so you can do whatever you want to with it. I don't have to try to control the outcome. It gave me the freedom just to do the next right thing because I'll leave the outcome in his hands. It's just my job to do the next thing I think we're supposed to do. And if that meant that more people came back when we reopened, and God continued to use us to impact people's lives, well, that's amazing. If it meant that nobody came back and God decided just to shut our church down, well, that would be okay too because he's got a bigger plan behind it. If that meant we didn't have the financings to finish the building and that thing had to sit there, and you know that parable Jesus said, nobody goes to build a tower without first counting the cost. If I became the illustration of that all throughout our county for every pastor, because that's what I was thinking. Boy, they're going to be able to put a name to that idiot now. It's going to be Matt Johnson. Well, you know what? It'd be okay. Because as long as I was confident I was doing and we were doing what God wanted us to do, well, then we could leave the outcome in his hands. We could trust him. But that required me letting go and surrendering control. And what I found on the other side is freedom. Now, you'll be happy to know people did come back to church and we do have the money, we think, to get the building done. But that's not the point. The point is what God's trying to do in you and what God's trying to do in me requires surrender. The freedom that you want the peace that you need, the confidence that you wish you had, you only find it on the other side of surrendering. What makes this so hard is that if you refuse to surrender, if you just keep your hand closed, you may never know what you missed. You may never realize what could have happened which may tempt you to think, I can just keep holding on to things and it'll all be okay. I'm telling you, do not make the mistake Caiaphas made. He refused to let go. And eventually it cost him everything. The temple, Judaism, that he held on to so tightly, I'm not letting go of it. Well, guess what? You just got to read a little history. By 70 AD, 40 years after this, Jerusalem, the temple, and Judaism were no more. He thought he could end all of this by putting Jesus on a cross. He had no control to keep Jesus from walking out of an empty tomb.
And most of all, think about it, most of all, Caiaphas missed the opportunity to have a personal relationship with God in human flesh right in front of his eyes because he wasn't willing to let go of his agenda. He wasn't willing to let go of control. So here's all I would say to you. If you are finding yourself in a situation right now where you are trying to protect and preserve, protect and preserve, protect and preserve, and maybe it's the uncertainty in your life that's driving you to do that. You're just so scared. You're so worried. You're so concerned. So you're trying to protect and preserve your family. You're trying to protect and preserve your agenda, protect and preserve your possessions, your money, protect and preserve your career, whatever it is. I'm telling you, God will not stop you. He will let you continue down that road if that's what you want to do. But you will not find freedom. You will not find peace. You will not gain confidence. And you will miss experiencing him personally in your life in a way you've never experienced before. Freedom is found on the other side of surrender. It's found when you open up your hand and you let go. Some of you, you're not followers of Jesus. You've never made a decision to do that. You're just holding to your life as tight as you possibly can. But if you would just have enough courage to say, Jesus, I give you my life, you'd find a freedom from your sin, from your brokenness, from your anxiety, from your worry. You would find a freedom you've never experienced before. And for all of us Christians who say we trust God and then we're hypocrites and we turn around and resist him, there is a freedom waiting for us as well. if we'll let go and give him control. Freedom is always found on the other side of surrender. And I'm just telling you, it is one open hand away. Let me pray for us. Father, this is one of those things that is a lot easier to talk about than it is to do. There's no doubt about that. So my prayer would simply be first, for those who are watching, for those who are here, who've never trusted you with their life and they've had so many reasons for not, it's so, so difficult for them to surrender to you. Would you give them the ability to know in this moment that you care about them, you love them, you proved it when you, Jesus, you gave your life on a cross for us, that you are trustworthy. And my prayer is that they just open up their hand and Say, Jesus, I give you my life. And see where that takes them as they follow you. And for all of us who are Christians, for all of us who've said we trust you with our eternities, but for whatever reason, it is hard for us to trust you with some of the basic components of our lives. For those of us who we're letting the little bit of Caiaphas in us rise up right now, and we're resisting you in some different areas of life. God, would you give us the wisdom to know where those are, but most importantly, give us the courage to open up our hands and to surrender so that we can experience the freedom, the peace, and the confidence that always comes on the other side of trusting you. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. Hope you have a happy fourth. We will see you next week. You're dismissed.